right, so now they should be in sync and we can go from there. Oh, got it. We're crossing the streams. What have we done? <laughs> oh, no. Well, anyway, just uh, again, I wanted to say thanks and thanks for uh, actually jumping this up a bit. I think that's one of the fun things about interviewing somebody over the international dateline. The fun thing is it's it's like calling someone in the future. The bad thing is I'm calling you at midnight. <laughs> oh, sorry to hear that. Well, I can tell you that tomorrow is looking okay for you guys. Like nothing terrible has happened. So enjoy enjoy your few hours of blissful ignorance on what the future holds see i think you you just very succinctly explained like why it's important to have historians to uh you know give us a little bit of a guidebook for uh, for the past it's it's the prologue absolutely yep um yeah well thank you for having me i'm happy to happy to do whatever i can i've taken a look over your questions and all that and run through them so happy to start whenever you start i mean well, first, I just wanted to do a, a quick introduction so that people are aware uh, who it is that we're we're talking to. Um, I am here with uh, with Dominic Perry, who is the host, uh, as I said, of a fellow podcaster of um, the uh, Egypt History Podcast, and uh, just wanted to ask a, a quick kind of background question first, just to explain how you decided to become a podcaster or um, how you decided to to kind of tackle that the project and and do it in the way that you did. Sure. Um, well, I have to have to admit that it was pretty ad hoc. Um, I, like most podcasters, was listening to The History of Rome by Mike Duncan. And I got to the end of that and thought, okay, well, I wonder if there's one for Egypt. And it actually turned out at the time that someone had briefly started one, but they'd only done an introductory episode and nothing, they hadn't followed through on it. So... I basically just decided to start then and there and with very little planning or forethought, I just started writing, you know, researching and writing, um, pretty quickly, um, which goes against all the advice that podcasters are generally supposed to follow, but I didn't know any better. So yeah, the show basically just started straight up fortunately i know my topic well enough that i was able to do that and not come across like an amateur amateur jerk um oh no it sounds yeah, like you might have listened to our podcast <laughs> <laughs> no i'm not making any criticisms on anyone there um i i definitely do want to go back one day and you know tighten up some of those early episodes um but yeah it was basically a flying by the seat of my pants idea which from from conception to putting out the first episode i think was really only two or three months it was a very short turnaround time by the standards of podcasters i mean one of my fellow podcasters who i won't mention he was doing research for a year before he started recording and he's already knowledgeable about his topic so i i basically just jumped straight in which is actually kind of my style i'm I'm not much of a planner. I'm more of a jump in and figure it out later kind of guy. So it worked out, and here we are four or five years later, and it's still going. It was really interesting. I've been following for about about two years, so uh, I really enjoyed uh, the fact that you can... I mean, that it, it makes history into into uh, a narrative story after to a certain extent. 
um, the fact that you decided to go in essentially chronological order with not a lot of gaps in between, just tell, I'm pausing when it's necessary to pause to kind of give more backstory to to why a... Well, I mean, calling it backstory again makes it sound like it's more just like, this week on ancient Egypt. Will they? Won't they? <laughs> yep. I mean, it makes it more sound like I'm a soap opera. Making, I'm making all of this up as I go. None of it is true. <laughs> But no, just the like the narr- the the fact that it it does uh, like harken back like so those, so you can go back to a previous episode or, or go back to a previous point in Egyptian his- history to see um, to see the way that it informs uh, whatever it is that you're talking about now is 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 really interesting and the, I I think that there's there's a big appetite for that because if you I, I mentioned in my my sample questions I sent you a couple of digs at the Discovery Channel maybe <laughs> but it's just like they, you don't you don't get a chance to really tune in to to see those type of things I think people generally are fascinated but then when they look for um, something of a guidebook or if they look for something as a, as a layperson to to want to learn more it, it does become very difficult and it doesn't seem as though it's a, it's only a one topic rather than you decided to take on the history as a whole and present it in a way that even when you complete the podcast, I think we'll be able to stand on its own. And it's just, again, I'm really grateful. What, I mean, why, why did you take the chronological approach is making this sound like a very long question, <laughs> but why, why the chronological approach? Okay. Chronological approach was, it's what felt natural to me because as with, as I, as I, in a way that I think, um, isn't really, appreciated all that much history is actually a story and i mean that in both good and bad in the sense that you know a lot of history is imagined or um sort of conjured up out of bits and pieces but we don't have the whole puzzle so history is very much a story in like the stephen king sense and um i don't know i just i felt that i should start the story where they would have started because going into it because i have an academic background in this material I felt that the thing that I wanted to distinguish the podcast was that it would be very minimal, like back and forth discussion about, you know, what, what does this Pharaoh mean or what is going on there? And more just how would the Egyptians have understood or um, experienced this tale? So I really focused on, you know, using ancient texts, stories, all that kind of thing, as many as possible to bring the story to life. And, so the chronological approach seemed natural to me because, I mean, if you want to learn about the basics of King Tutankhamun, there are a dozen history document history channel documentaries out there about it or Discovery, and not not all of them are good, but you can you can still go get that little snippet for an hour if you want it. But I can't talk about King Tutankhamun without a lot of background introduction because there's a lot going on day to day in their world. So in the same way that nobody could explain May 18th, 2017 without explaining, say all of 2016, I don't, I didn't feel that it would be right to tackle the big topics without giving them their proper context. So the chronological approach was what, what seemed best because it's so easy to find material about the major figures, the Great Pyramids, Nefertiti, Tutankhamun, Ramses the Great, all that. But because it's so, at least in a sense of like documentaries and books, they have to, you know, market it and they have to advertise it and get people to watch it. 
there's very little emphasis on these these background stories, which are still interesting, but perhaps not as dramatic as people want. So the luxury of the podcast medium is that I can spend as long as I want talking about whatever I want. And so the chronological approach, filling in every single chapter in the story seemed like the best way to do that. There's really interesting stories that you find along the way as well. Just, I mean, as I said, coming to it from uh, from a layman perspective, hearing about things like the first time a pharaoh is probably murdered and, and what that does in terms of, like, sending it like, okay, God King, uh, problem about that. Turns out you can kill him. Uh, we yep. hadn't thought that <laughs> one through. Uh, what do we do about this? Okay. <laughs> so yeah, there's mean... a lot of really interesting intrigue along the way. Because that's the thing is, as you go through the story, you can almost see the Egyptians themselves figuring out some of these things that we now take for granted. You know, we take back uh, backroom politics and court dealings as almost part and parcel of rule. But back in 4000, 3000 BCE, that's not necessarily how it was. It was more direct. And over time, it got complex. And you can actually see the Egyptians experiencing that complexity as their society develops and it's interesting and i wanted to i mean so obviously the impetus for for bringing you on the show here is not only well a couple of things we obviously enjoy having uh having a chance to talk to other podcasters and hopefully mine this material for for a kind of uh getting people who are interested in uh, egyptian history a, a resource to to go and, and look through and hopefully hopefully learn learn a bit but the other thing is the is it's confluence with popular culture and there's going to be a film out and we're going to air this uh, right around the the time the film comes out here in the states uh, and uh, I, I guess the quick quick question is just how do you think of uh, or what role do you think Hollywood has in terms of, of uh, well <laughs> I should say uh, there's a lot of questions there I apologize I, I suppose the funny the basic one is just how do you get bogged down with a bit of the the stereotypes that how many people kind of come up to you and are like so have you been cursed etc cetera, etc cetera? <laughs> um, very few actually most i think you know most people understand that the whole idea of the mummies walking and curses and stuff that's that's fun fantasy um i do get i get plenty of questions about let's say alternative interpretations of history particularly on this on the score of you know ancient lost civilizations there's there's still plenty of those um i I have to admit that I am actually a big fan of mummy films and that sort of thing. Now, obviously that's partly because I love the subject matter and seeing Egypt on screen is just always enjoyable, no matter how bad it is. Not that I'm referencing any film, but if I had to, I'd say Gods of Egypt. Um, oh, reference away. So, <laughs> We're fine absolutely. with that. Absolutely. Yes, that, that particular film was an abomination. Um, but I love... You know, I love a mummy story because, uh, first of all, I'm a big fan of, like, you know, that kind of creature horror. Like, one of my favorite films of all time is Alien. So something like The Mummy is very appealing to me just as a entertainment experience. But I also like that it gives... The cool thing about mummies, or at least films based on that sort of idea, is that they take something you're f basically familiar with, the idea of Egypt... And they spin it in interesting ways. You know, I'm always I'm always down for a bit of creativity on historical um, content. 
Like, so I'm very much looking forward to the new Mummy film. And, you know, I'll probably go see it opening night, and I'm sure I'll be highly entertained by it. Um, it helps that I'm also a big Tom Cruise fan, so I guess that's going to double down. But, you know, one of my all-time favorite films is The Mummy by from 1999 with Brendan Fraser. Um, probably the film that I actually... This is... I'm going to lose all my archaeological credibility here. But I'm not a massive fan of Indiana Jones. And it's because he's a bad archaeologist. <laughs> he... And it's not his fault, but he damages everything that he touches. <laughs> his, his methodologies are awful. And um, so Indiana Jones is actually probably the, the franchise that is the most... Is the, it mis, mischaracterizes archaeology the most egregiously. Because, believe it or not, us archaeologists or people involved in archaeology we spend a lot less time than you'd expect fighting Nazis. Like, he's doing it 90% of the time, we maybe do it 20% of the time, and I just feel, I feel like they've they've changed the perception of the of the career. It is on the brochure, the recruitment brochures, though. I mean, you do you do got to advertise the appropriate quotient of, like, 80% of the time, so you want to do some phys ed in, in undergraduate because you're going to be hoofing around dig sites but also occasionally punching Nazis, so, yeah. Sure, we all knew what we were getting into, but some of us hoped we were punching Nazis more often than it turned out to be, and we felt sold short. Hopefully not a thing that you have to do in New Zealand very often. <laughs> Maybe more call of that in America. Political reference! <laughs> yeah, we have less trouble with that here so far, but God help us if that starts... So, uh, but I uh, thank you for 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 going down that that uh, the rabbit hole with me. But the I do really appreciate it, and and thank you for for being in good spirits for this because I think the the thing is is that it does get people interested in 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 the topic at the very least, and and seems to be good fun. And one of the things that's interesting about the new Mummy film uh, is that um, I mean I think they've maybe done it once before, but like the fact that it has a female focus um, for for the character, and that maybe very very loosely, but maybe pulls some interesting threads and. In, in Egyptian history, and I, I really enjoyed hearing them on your podcast. You've had some really fascinating stories about about the the women uh, who who are uh, a part of Egyptian history as well. And one of them was at the very beginning. And I'm going to borrow from you and, and do a little bit chronological here. Can we talk about um, one of the the earliest subjects on your show, which was Queen? Kent Forgive me if I'm butchering this. Queen Kentikaus. Kentikaus from the fourth dynasty. Yeah. And so she she is kind of a kind of uh, the question I had is like is this uh, am I pulling the right figure here is kind of a, a role model kind of sets the the standard for um, for for queens to a certain extent for the the rest of Egyptian history too. Well, that's a difficult question because, and I'm going to get academic here for a moment. We still don't understand the exact nature of Kenti Kaus's rule. We know that. At the back at the very very beginning in the first dynasty, which is about 2,900 BCE, there is a queen named Merenif who takes, who actually becomes, you know, basically ruler of the kingdom, and she has a royal tomb and everything. And Kentikaus follows a few centuries later, after the a few decades after the Great Pyramid was built. She seems to act as a regent in a you know, it's sort of not officially a king sense, but then some of her imagery 
shows her with royal insignia, like a false beard and a uraeus, which are the sort of two of the, the main symbols of the king. So it's still not properly understood what Kenty Kaus was doing. She's clearly not a Hatshepsut-type figure who was actually ruling as king of Upper and Lower Egypt with all the titles and details. But she's Kenty Kaus is also obviously not secondary to anyone. So she's a tough one to figure out, but I would suggest that by the time figures like uh, Hatshepsut or Nefertiti came along, Kenty Kaus was probably forgotten, to be honest. Uh, her her period of authority was so brief and so um, informal in some respects, so limited that she probably didn't have as great an impact as the fact that she's a woman suggests to us. So that, I think well, that makes sense. There's a huge easy. huge period of time in between. You're talking 1900 years or or th- ah, sorry, almost 6,000 years ago. So it's 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 a good like goodness like nine. 13, 19 centuries. It's a long, long period of time between her and, like, Hatshepsut. Yeah, Kentikaus is about uh, 2400 BCE, and Hatshepsut's approximately 1500 BCE. So, you know, that's 900 years. Um, which, you know, today we might take plenty of examples from Queen Elizabeth I, but uh, back then with more limited record-keeping, she was probably forgotten already, or at least a very shadowy reference in the annals of Egyptian rulers. It just, it was an interesting figure because it's one I'd, I'd never, I'd never heard before. And you said there was one that was even earlier than that, who, who had more of, more of a, of a, of a traditional, you said king, kingship type role. Mm, Queen Mary, Queen Mary Neith in the first dynasty seems to come to power as a regent for her son after her husband dies younger and she built she seems to rule for at least you know several years cuz she builds a full on tomb in the royal necropolis and it's a large tomb it's a good sized tomb it's one of the bigger ones there so she seems to take authority at a very early period in history you know 2900 BCE back when the kingdom is still sort of developing um kingship is a lot more direct and personal and of course, it's a more violent world. She comes along and manages to to control things for quite a significant period of time. And it's unfortunate we don't know more about her in terms of what she actually did because she shows up basically very early on. She's like third or fourth in the in the line of Egyptian kings. This woman comes along and seems to be quite successful. As you know, as we have no idea how she died or anything, but she seems to have pulled off what she was trying to achieve at the time. I guess because I'm taking such a huge leap <laughs> in time to talk about the ones that I was more familiar with, are there other big kind of foundational uh, figures that are like that, that are that are scattered in between the, the those two big periods, like early Egyptian history into the New Kingdom, where we see all those famous kind of uh, female female figures? Are there, are there others that would have been more important or more formative to that, to that era? Yes, actually the the big one, if you so obviously the the standard we always hold is Hatshepsut. She's the she's the archetypal female ruler in Egypt. Um, she took or may have taken quite a bit of influence from a woman named Sobek Neferu, who came along around approximately 1700 BCE or so, so only 200 years before her. And Sobek Neferu 
became king for th- three to four years at a time when the Egyptian kingdom was sort of going into one of its periods of decline and fragmentation. Sobek Neferu comes along and manages to, you know, become a legitimate ruler in many respects. She bears the titles King of Upper and Lower Egypt, wears the crown and all that sort of thing. She doesn't stick around long. She's only around for three to four years. So we're not sure what happened with her, whether she died naturally or whether someone decided to solve the problem more directly. But she, her, I, her, her symbolism, the symbols she used and the images and the, the ideas seem to have survived in memory long enough for Hatshepsut to use them in her own time. So Sobek Nefro is probably the big one that comes along around the middle of the Egyptian pharaonic period. And she's quite interesting. And it's unfortunate, again, that we don't know more about her because she she pulled off a significant feat given her at the time because when she came along, it was still, it was five or 600 years since the last ruling queen, which was Kentikaus. So yeah, she's she's the big one, I guess. That's interesting. And then, so I guess the, then leading up to, to the new kingdom, so it's again, another like five or 600 years. And then you have a, uh, of a figure that you profile and gave a lot of, um, I was happy that you gave a lot of time to, because it did seem like a fascinating figure because it's, uh, in a way like the foundational, uh, or the foundational character for, for the, the new kingdom period or for the first dynasty of the, of that new kingdom. Um, is is uh, Queen and then again I'm probably going to butcher it. <laughs> is it Am- Amosa or Amosa Nefertari? Yep, Amosa. Sure. Um, to be clear, I don't think your pronunciations can actually butcher it because we're still not 100 percent sure how these words are pronounced. So you can you can call it whatever you want. Yeah, Amosa Nefertari. She's the she's the wife of a king um, and the daughter of another king. So. As far as the Egyptian sort of concept of legitimacy goes, she's, you know, she's right up there. Not only is she daughter of one king, wife of another, but then she's the mother of the next king. So she's in in three different ways. The only three ways that matter, she is totally connected to royalty and kingship, and that really helps her um, gain authority. It's, it's not clearly understood what she did, but she seems to have been possibly a regent for her son, Amunhotep I, because his father may have died earlier than um, anticipated, or the son, the son was too young when his father died. And it seems quite likely that she governed on his behalf, you know, led the court, led the officials, commanded what they were doing, until he came of age to actually take on the burdens of government. Now, she was never a king in the in any in any sense. She always acted as queen and a regent. Um, but she was definitely a very powerful figure and kind of a guiding light for this king. And in later later centuries, she was actually deified, sort of remembered as a a queen who had gone above and beyond and deserved to be worshipped as as a god and her and her son enjoyed posthumous fame in the valley of the kings and the the workers village near there the village called Dera Medina people would hold festivals to these this king and this queen to Amos and Nefertari and to her son Amunhotep and there would be shrines to them and they would make offerings to them and for, so we're not and we're not entirely sure why but for some reason 
this woman and her son attained a really special status in the popular memory later on. And it certainly seems like by setting setting Amunhotep on his on his feet, she sort of set the tone for how the the dynasty was going to go forward. And for that she was really celebrated. I think I think she was lucky or her memory her memory benefited from the fact that she never acted as king. She only acted as regent in a sort of traditional acceptable sense. And when Amunhotep was old enough she she stepped back. Now the other thing that she did that kind of seems to have some some influence on on the the, the same direction um, is that she also took a role as a, as a pre as a as a, a very important priestess at the time or as a religious leader? So she was the the wife of Amun, the god's wife of Amun. Yep. Um, we're not entirely sure how she came to that or what actually where that title originates necessarily. Um, she was. It's, it's, this is hard to hard to explain, but the god's wife of Amun is. It's a type of priestess, and in a formal sense, they are, you know, technically the consort of the god Amun, who is the, the sort of king of the gods at the time when she was living. And the god's wife of Amun is sort of the highest priestess in the land. Now, the Egyptians didn't really have a, a separate order of priestesses. They didn't have nuns or anything like that. But there was always this woman in the city of Thebes where Amun's main, Amun's main temple was, and she seems to have acted as sort of his his consort, his his wife, I guess you could accurately say, but almost like a female representative for him. Now, the problem is there was also a high priest, and that was either an individual or the king himself. So unpacking exactly what the title means in a practical sense, you know, what kind of authority does it bring with it is is still a bit up in the air. But Amosa Nefertari seems to have been one of the early holders of this title who gave it a bit of a bit more prestige than it might previously have had. Because her because the Queen and her family really emphasized worship of the god Amun and they spent they spent big on building temples for him and that sort of thing. They really kickstarted this cult that became one of the most important cults in Egypt, and eventually had a great deal of political and um, economic power. So, it's it's one of her more defining characteristics that she held this title, and what that actually means in terms of practical effects is not really understood. But she could have been a very driving force in the early development of that cult. So the thing that 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 bears like immediate repeat or immediate consequences for is uh do you think that without this this figure uh, essentially in in living memory of the of the people would you have had then the the next kind of big um and perhaps the most important uh, at least uh, at least to our contemporary knowledge the female figure maybe in all of Egypt's history and in and Hatshepsut ah now that I did butcher <laughs> but got tongue tied but do you, do you mean do you think that that's even possible to because she has the same title she takes the same title in fact the royal family essentially the way you present it seems to have just been like mm, this is the only person who will do you need somebody who's of high standing to 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 fill in this fill in these big shoes because this is such a respected person who who had had it previously 
Like, do, mm. do you know what I mean? Because yeah. she takes both the title of the of the God's Wife of a Moon, and then eventually, as you say, a, is is a queen, and then also tries to or try uh, seems to become uh, a pharaoh or a king of of Egypt herself. Sure. Well, Hatshepsut starts out as you know a princess. Um, she's the daughter of a queen, of a king, and she gets she gets named to the position God's Wife of Amun relatively early in her life she she gives that title up when she becomes king she very consciously hands it over to her daughter just uh, a year or two before she takes on the titles of being the king of egypt and the logic of that is pretty easy to figure out you know a king is technically male now you can't have a male god's wife that's as you know they would consider that just too anachronistic so because Hatshepsut became king rather than queen and many of her symbols portray her as a man, she, you know, she essentially went, underwent like a, a public sex change. Um, as far as official propaganda was concerned, she became male. Before she did that, she gave up her title of God's wife. Now, what she learned from Amos and Nefertari was probably as much about the bearing of royalty and regency as anything else, because Hatshepsut was incredibly successful at establishing herself as the king of Egypt. She was, she was in power for 22 years, and about 15 of those she was acting as the king. So she's the, she's the most successful of, of all the, uh, the queens who become kings or rulers in Egyptian history. Now, Definitely, it would be easy to guess that she learned a lot from the memory of Amos and Nefertari as to how how this could be achieved, how power could be wielded amongst a world of men, and how the authority of the high priestess could be leveraged into a formal political power. Because both of them act as the god's wife of Amun, both of them wield political power on behalf of children, either Amunhotep I or Hatshepsut's nephew, Tutmose III. And both of them seem to do it in a way that is generally accepted by those around them, and neither of them are assassinated or anything, to the best of our knowledge. So chances are Hatshepsut looked to her, you know, splendid ancestor and and thought that's that's an example to follow is there something that's unique about that period of of egyptian history where you have a uh, have prominent um prominent women in in political life and uh, that that made it possible or is it what does it say about the the new kingdom period well i think it it comes down to how this particular period started because the new kingdom is born out of a what you could call a sort of war of liberation when the Egyptians, or at least this is how they described it, expelled a set of foreign rulers from their land, people who had taken over half of the kingdom. The Egyptians led a sort of reconquista against them and pushed them out to reunify the land. Now, during that, that period, and this war sort of lasted for a good hundred years before it was finally successful for the Egyptians, during that period... You had at least one major woman 
Queen Ahotep who comes forward to keep the Egyptian kingdom together after her husband dies in battle. And I think her example, she sort of leads the kingdom, um, helps keep the whole the whole organization running while her son grows up and is able to take power. Her example, I think, reminds the Egyptians or reinforces for them the idea that in times of difficulty or times of crisis, the queens are an extremely potent source of political stability. And I think without without that one woman, the Queen Ahotep, you wouldn't necessarily have had Amos and Nefertari or Hatshepsut, because without her, I think you might have had the old sort of chauvinism persisting more strongly and the Egyptians might have been less flexible on the idea of a woman actively leading the government and eventually becoming king in her own right. So, yeah, the unique thing about this period is that it started in a time of war, and in the course of that war, powerful women demonstrated their ability to be effective rulers in their own right. So, I'm using that as a springboard as well because, of course, they're not the the only um only women i mean there's still a couple of more figures in that in that period that uh are are well known and in popular culture um and, i mean i guess the the big one would be would be nefertiti or ah, <laughs> again getting tugged out i don't know why would be nefertiti <laughs> would be would be uh would be one that that is in that same uh, kind of category, and that one is even more controversial because blame the Discovery Channel on this. So I, I hope I'm glad I get to ask somebody who <laughs> who can actually explain the, the academic debate on this. Is is that there's some there? It again, this is all just coming from bad uh, Discovery Channel documentaries. But like, isn't there even some <laughs> thought that she may that the the brief period or the brief kingship that followed uh, her husband may actually be a reference to her own. Uh, attempt to 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 rule the kingdom for for a period of time, or the influence that she had on the kingdom. Yes, um, the Discovery Channel's got those got those basic facts absolutely right. There is a a theory still unproved in academic Egyptology that um, so Nefertiti, for your listeners, Nefertiti is the queen of the king Akhenaten, and after her husband dies, there is a mysterious king who shows up called Smenkare. Now, nobody knows who Smenkare is. He appears out of nowhere. There's no reference to him before this, and there's no one in the family that we know of who would make sense to be this figure. Smenkare goes through a name change early in his reign. He, he rules for at least two to four years. And within the first couple of years, he changes his name the earliest form of his name is Nefer Neferu Aten, which um, essentially means beautiful are the beauties of the Aten, who is the sun god. That's That name, Nefer Neferu Aten, is the same name as what Nefertiti had when she was queen of Egypt. It was her formal, her formal name when she sat on the throne. Because Nefertiti has this name and this random person who we have no idea about shows up using the same name at first. Many Egyptologists, not not all of them, there's still debate, many Egyptologists think that after her husband died, Nefertiti might have become the, the king of Egypt. 
taken over in a, in the same sense as Hatshepsut. They there was still the prince Tutankhamun, although he had a different name. He was still around, so she may have been acting as a regent or in a similar sense to Hatshepsut, you know, taking on authority while the child was too young. But for certain, there's this very strange figure who no one understands and no one knows about, and Nefertiti, we don't know where she goes. We've There's never been any indication of where her tomb lies, unless it might conceivably, possibly be hidden in the tomb of Tutankhamun, although I don't think it is. Um, she disappears late in her husband's reign, and there's no reference to her. So it's entirely possible that she changes her name and becomes Smenkare as a king. I personally subscribe to that theory. I think on the just the weight of the evidence, I think it is more like more than likely that she did become a royal authority in her own right during her late husband her husband's late life and then after he died. Now, what actually happened during this period is anyone's guess. There's this very this frustrating little gap of what's actually going on. But Nefertiti may have become king of Egypt herself. How would one count to one, two, three in Egyptian? <laughs> uh, don't even don't even ask. I'm terrible with Egyptian numbers. They just don't stick in my head. That's a that's a whole other. That's the uh, this week in a, the Egyptian math podcast. <laughs> that actually that could be a whole podcast. I've been meaning to do a, an episode about Egyptian maths and geometry, but haven't got around to it. Mostly because I hate maths, but you know. Uh, it is what it, it is. What it is. You probably can't build the pyramids without math, but at the same time, you're just like, you sure I can't uh, just get like a, a GED <laughs> and then just go build the little mastaba off to the side? I mean, I'll work my way up. Yeah, can I just pile some stones on top of other stones? It's fine, right? Yeah, yeah. No structural engineering there. So <laughs> I guess I mean that's a structural engineering leads me to where we last left off, which is the hidden tomb of. <laughs> and actually, yeah, I guess it is interesting just how little seems to be left in terms of of mentions of of such a major historical figure you just pl- falls off the the face of the historical record is that how much do you think that is is that any kind of lends credence to the theory that you were just talking about or also just the idea of of it being a controversial thing when a, when when a female ruler actually did end up taking taking more more power at the uh, or or took up those symbolic roles is there, I mean, was there attempts to then kind of, add, again, I'm going back to Discovery Channel thing, so it was, it served me right last time, <laughs> but <laughs> but it, were there attempts to deface um, and, and change the way that, that major public works or the, the records were, were kept in terms of, of references to those figures, because they had, they had that potential historical impact? Yes, absolutely. Um in order to, to do this, I actually have to plug my show um, because we ju- I just I just did an episode concerning this. So in episode 75 of the History of Egypt podcast, uh, it's called Tutmos Triumphant, Hatshepsut's nephew, Tutmos III, he eventually you know becomes king in his own right after Hatshepsut dies. Now, for the first 20 years of ruling by himself, he sort of just forgets about Hatshepsut. Like, he doesn't really... He's not too bothered by her. But then later in his life, when he's he's starting to see the end on the horizon and starting to think about uh, making plans for his for the succession, he, within a couple of years, does a 180 on Hatshepsut and 
goes from basically ignoring her to having her name and image removed from any public monument that he can find. So he sends his architects and his stonemasons out to literally chisel the name of Hatshepsut out wherever it's found and replace it with the names of either Tutmose's wives or his daughters, basically to, to repurpose all of her imagery to suit his own family needs. Now, the reasons he does this are... I personally don't think is necessarily misogyny, but it's clearly related to political legitimacy and how concerned he is with this little anomaly that is Hatshepsut. I think he wanted to ensure that nobody could possibly challenge his son when his son came to power, and in order to do that, he had to minimize the role of Hatshepsut during his own reign. Where where does Hatshepsut's daughter fall into that? Because, I mean, is there some thought that that she wanted necessarily at the end of her reign to pass along the crown to to her daughter or to to make it a kind of a matrilineal lineage at that point? Well, we actually don't know what happens to Hatshepsut's daughter. She might have married Tutmose III, but it seems unlikely, and that's based on one reference that might be um, her name. Um... She remains uh, the, the high priestess, the god's wife of Amun, right into the reign of Tutmose III, but she sort of just trails away. We don't actually we don't know what happens to her. We don't know whether she leaves the position or hands it over or whatever. She just sort of fizzles out of the record. So that that never becomes an issue. She just disappears. On the matter of Nefertiti, that she's a unique well she's in a unique situation because her husband. Akhenaten was responsible for some very questionable policies. He closed the temples of Egypt and tried to promote the rule of a single monotheistic god, which is all kinds of bizarre to the ancient Egyptians because they were used to thousands of gods. He he tries to basically rebrand the uh, religion of the country to suit his own political and religious needs. Nefertiti sort of gets caught in the crossfire of that, because if she becomes king afterward, then and then her her um, I guess stepson Tutankhamun comes to power. After Tutankhamun dies, about ten years into his rule, the government is taken over by people who are not blood relatives. They're taken over by generals because Tutankhamun dies without any children, and with him, the bloodline is essentially finished. the The second person to come to power after Tutankhamun, a man named Horemheb, he removes Tutankhamun, Nefertiti, and Akhenaten from the political record. He strikes them out of the of the lineage and replaces their name with his. And with the result that he claims to have come to power about 30 years earlier than he actually did, or maybe even longer. So Nefertiti suffered by association with Akhenaten, but I don't, I don't think there was any necessary um, personal bias towards her. She was simply part of a, a movement or a political period that was later cast as illegitimate and heretical. So... She she was obliterated from the record, but not for the same reason that Hatshepsut was. Although I guess they're both political at the end of the day. So it's interesting. So it, it isn't, I mean, a lot of this seems to be just uh, 
in, at least contemporary thought, like projecting itself into a pr- political reality that hadn't really set in yet, uh, in in some mm. ways, just because. You look at that. You look at that, and you're like, "Hmm. Well, this would be a tr- problem today. Would it be a problem then?" And it's it's int- the, one of the more interesting things about listening to the podcast has just been through that through that chronological approach. You hear different periods of time, different different perspectives, and 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 different thoughts. So it seems like you said these these kind of come up independently. Like there was def- it was a the pharaonic society it, it was a king <laughs> king based society but there's also there's yeah. there are roles for 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 these women and it's prominent it's not necessarily the same the same considerations that we have today it wasn't necessarily just like a misogynistic attempt to 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 cut them out of history not that that maybe didn't have a have an effect but it sounds like that isn't necessarily for those figures in particular that's the the driving force behind it it's just like oops uh that was an accident make sure that you remember that i'm the king yep i did all this stuff <laughs> yeah absolutely it's it's part of the unique nate well maybe that's not unique but the the characteristic of egyptian pharaohs is that they like to proclaim themselves sort of the second coming of the great the greatest of the great they like to say that each each new reign is a new age of the world and part of the thing that goes along with that is downplaying the role of your predecessors within that even though they gave full respect and honor to their ancestors especially in the kingship they were very concerned with standing apart and making themselves seem more important at the time so there were plenty of figures who you know were forgotten within the Egyptian lineage simply because they were either inconsequential or because a later king decided he wanted to use that king's monuments for himself and so the name was lost. I mean, there are lots of shadowy figures in Egyptian history who we have the barest traces of, but we know they must have ruled for some period of time. Egyptian politics was really a a game of sort of status and respect and prestige, not so much a, a game of like ideology or policy occasionally it was like that but definitely these were more more ego-driven rulers than perhaps today although there are certainly examples today of people working like that just to get topical i mean it's not as if you have to put your name on the side of a building emblazoned in gold i mean in the old days you would at least make it in electrum because it was a rarer mineral come on have some class people Exactly. I mean, I feel like we're just we're not living up to the standards of our forebears in terms of the historical bigotry we could be, you know, enacting. Uh, <laughs> sorry about that. It would, it would hurt less if I didn't live uh, or if I hadn't been in Chicago not that recently and, and seeing uh, <laughs> seeing the monument, uh, as it were, has to have the biggest uh, antenna. We'll read into that whatever we think. But uh, Absolutely. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess that does that does tie into like the, the kind of the uh, maybe even like the Shelley poem, the whole idea of, of these great public works and, and the the idea that these that's how their people become remembered throughout the ages as is something that seems universal to all kings and not just any one time period. Absolutely. I mean, Ozymandias is supposedly based on um, the, ex- the poet's experience of a pharaonic monument built by Ramesses II, whose throne name, Usa Matre, might have become corrupted into Ozymandias. Um, yeah, I mean, there's... In kingships and presidencies and any kind of leadership position, there's always that temptation to glorify oneself and to make one seem 
grander than one actually is. And whether that's because of a deep-rooted fear of failure or um, oncoming death and uh, being forgotten is, is hard to pick down. But maybe it's maybe the simple fact is the Egyptians had such panache with how they went about this. You know, they built great effing monuments of stone to glorify themselves. They built ungodly huge temples to gods that were essentially connected to the king himself. So when the king worships a god, he's partly worshipping himself. The Egyptians just had such fantastic flair with how they went about this grandiosity and ego. And I think that's partly why they're so compelling, because it's sort of a some of the deep-rooted fears of the human psyche, like being forgotten or um, just simply dying, they're exhibited with such such style by these men men and women so i guess that bears bears repeating to the the difference between what you you do as a as a historian in terms of um your area of of a particular research you you talked about um really doing urban archaeology and the difference between i guess like the i suppose it's a, is that different in 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 kind of learning the lives of of everyday people because the the big i guess the thing that's kind of left out from grand records of rule or <laughs> long long history of of uh, of these 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 people who are in charge of everything is what what life is like for for the average person in in that time period what and what do you what do you glean from from that oh you can glean all kinds of stuff especially the 21st century actually in particular is becoming a bit of a golden age for that kind of archaeology because technologies like um, forensic analysis have become so much more accessible and um, open to to different um, foundations that now archaeologists working in urban spaces or particularly cemeteries can analyze material that a hundred years ago just wasn't possible to study. So archaeologists working in the city of Amarna at the moment, which is actually ironically the city of Akhenaten and Nefertiti, they can study the bodies that are buried in the workmen's cemetery. And these are just, you know, very small, very small graves for poor individuals who were working on the king's monuments or were working perhaps as tomb cutters or um, even just bakers and that kind of thing. You know, people keep people keeping the engine of society running, essentially. By studying things like bone morphology and uh, composition, they can determine that these people lived very hard lives. You know, many of them died early in their early 20s. They have all kinds of um, arthritic conditions from um, back-breaking labor. These are things that weren't necessarily accessible 100 years ago, and now they can study the diet, and they know that um, many of these ancient figures were subsisting on a very limited diet with only occasional bits of meat here and there to keep them keep them nourished so urban archaeology is is the growth growth area of egyptology at the moment a historian like myself can use that material to tell a story and i certainly intend to in the podcast but a historian still tends to work with the same old materials like texts and art artwork and those and popular traditions archaeologists working in the field of like urban spaces, domestic areas are pushing forward our understanding of Egyptian society in a way that has simply never but happened before. It's it's the real the real forefront of Egyptology right now is is unpacking that. And I think over the next um, 10, 20, 30 years, we will have a much more 
compelling and detailed understanding of how these people lived. There are certain things that are just gone forever. Like we don't we don't fully know what the average Egyptian believed religiously. We can try and reverse engineer that from what they were buried with or bits and pieces, references here and there. And we don't really know what they talked about day by day. We don't have most of their daily culture. We don't even know what their music sounds like, for example. Much of that is probably just gone forever because it's so ephemeral. Without recording, music is easy to lose. But archaeologists can tell us a lot about how these people physically lived, laughed, loved, and all that sort of thing. Bring it to the the contemporary to the to the work that you actually do as a historian and as a historical communicator with the podcast. What what kind of importance do you do you vest, or what? what how, why do you think that it, it is so important to have that that cultural understanding to to see that there is actually more discoveries out there? I mean that it's a con, it's a contemporary field. So what I mean why why do you think that it's an important thing to to do? Why it's important work? Hmm. It's a big question, but and I can only give a personal opinion on this. I mean, other historians might see it differently. To me, the his, a historian is similar to a storyteller or a poet, only we're dealing with more concrete material than those people might be doing. They they deal with ideas, and so do we, but we we take our ideas from what is understood of the past. And I think the great potential of historians or the, the potential that the best historians fulfill is to make us make each of us aware of how connected the human race actually is. Because 200 years ago and before, popular ideas were very much focused on division, what's different about us versus them. You know, how is their God different from our God? How are those people different from our people? Are those people worse? Should those people perhaps be enslaved? That kind of example. Historians are able to go into the, ma the material of that, those cultures from any period in history and show that once you trim away the politics and the ideas that people emphasize too much, we are not a series of races, but we're a species experiencing itself in different ways. And I think historians, more than any other, are very well positioned to draw the connections between the different groups of humanity and to emphasize for anybody just how much we're all actually in this together and that the divisions of today become very inconsequential once the period in which they're occurring disappears. I guess to, to follow up, I mean, and, and again, to keep it grounded in, in the importance of, of the work, how... How how important are the grant resources? Things that come from um, kind of government institutions. I'd, I'd mentioned in um, just kind of before we talked the idea of. Unfortunately, the most recent budget proposal actually calls for the elimination of all funding for humanities research and support for anthropology or anthropological study and the even. Uh, museum and library sciences, all of it gone. <laughs> and so that yep. just how how important are those those type of like everyday grants in terms of field work for for academics or for people who are actually interested in going and studying? How important are those resources? Well, they're both they're both extremely important and totally non-important because in terms of pure economic basics 
the the institutions find a way to to get around it. They either get private funding for that kind of thing, you know, philanthropic endeavors. So, um, good re good institutions find a way around their problem, but as a culture, that is disastrous because that's the that's the attitude of a person or of a group who wants to emphasize divisions who wants to break down communication and cooperation between different groups it's the mentality of control it's the mentality of subduing any opposition and when people understand what makes humanity strong and together that's a threat to people who want humanity to be dependent on them so the particular administration that is putting forth this budget seems to very much emphasize their own aggrandizement, their own glory, their own control, which is disastrous for the people as a whole, because your the American society is built on inclusiveness, bringing people together to work towards a common objective, with a few blips here and there of, you know, not that necessarily going the way you want it to. So... Academic institutions will weather the storm and probably find new sources of funding from the private sector in particular. But as a society, that kind of policy and attitude is a catastrophe. I also say, like in terms of of economic impact, a lot of these these cultural sites and that are are being worked to to be preserved or then become opened up to the public end up not only just giving a, a sense of place to to community or to, to peoples to kind of better understand themselves or for everyone to get a chance to, 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 to better understand themselves but also that that seems to be a big economic boost or a boon to to a lot of to a lot of areas is that something that I mean how important is that in terms of just um, I mean certainly in the US we have have a lot of cultural sites like uh, in in the southwest that that people come to go see and we don't advertise them perhaps as well as as we should internationally but but in Egypt I imagine that is a, a big economic concern to to get people to to come to to visit and experience the culture absolutely I mean tourism is one of the lifebloods of Egypt without tourism Egypt suffers greatly um, their economy is still building towards um, you know independence from that kind of thing but Egypt needs tourism in order to fund its economic development. And, I mean, if you take it even to just the basic things like entrepreneurial endeavors, you know, building companies, that sort of thing, it's it's so much more helpful to a person going into another country to, to build a, a, a business there or something if they understand some of the basic elements and foundations of that culture and who they're dealing with. And, you know, whether we like it or not, much of the the economic potential in the world is focused now in places like Africa, the Middle East, and China. The more we understand where these people come from and the amazing legacies that they are the inheritors of, the better it is for everyone trying to engage with those communities as on both an understanding level and, you know, building a business or building an economy. I mean, if you understand the mindset and the history and what makes a people proud and what makes them um, happy with who they are, then you're going to have a lot more headway than if you just walk in 
thinking that their society or their culture and their history has nothing to offer you. So although things like the arts don't translate directly into dollars and cents, the advantages that they give to the mind that studies them in terms of understanding peoples and working with them is, I would think, incalculable almost, because the potential you have to work with someone and to build something together with them is infinitely greater if you understand where that person comes from. That is hard to argue. <laughs> I think that's fantastic. I, I wouldn't want to be on the other end of uh, of, of that line of argument. Um, I, I guess the the to kind of close. I mean, I want to ask if you. I mean, what is the the personal experience for you? Like, what um, what is has your own experience been in terms of of getting a chance to go and, and visit or to participate in, uh, in in a in a dig or any excavation? And what uh what what was the most uh I, I should say what element of that stood out for the most the most for you did you have a chance to ever have have a discovery of of your own mm. well i've been on two two excavations in my academic career so i'm very much what you'd call a still a tourist to archaeology than an actual archaeologist um the first the the best experience i've had was in sudan at a ancient Egyptian site down quite a ways down the Nile and excavating a temple there, which had been built by the Egyptians and then taken over by the Sudanese and then continuously developed working within that site gave you or me anyway, an incredible sense of how these traditions start out so small but become so impactful on generations of people. And working alongside local Sudanese on this project, you could, it was clear that at least the, the more attentive among them were fascinated by this history of their own people that they were helping to discover. And in that respect, archaeology has been very emotionally rewarding in the sense of learning alongside people who might not otherwise have learned this material and seeing seeing a continuity of culture and uh, development coming up out of the soil that the average person in their lifetime might never experience. And actually, it's, it's one of the things that I recommend to listeners whenever they email me is about you know, learning more about archaeology or history in general, I say, well, universities and archaeological projects all over the world are always looking for volunteers, people who are willing to to put up a little bit of money towards the project and come along and help, you know, even if they're doing really basic work, like digging digging trenches and helping to sift things through. It's a very rewarding experience and I, I recommend it to anyone who asks that they get in touch with their local university or archaeological project and see like do you need a volunteer or do you know a team that needs volunteers because I would happily go along I think there's something it's you can look at an object in a museum and you can and understand intellectually where this might come from and how it might connect to your past once you dig your hands into that soil and start bringing objects up for yourself. 
the the emotional understanding is incomparable it's infinitely better you get a physical sense of the world that these people were inhabiting and you touch things that people were touching thousands of years before and no one since then has touched it it's it's so much more connected to you when you can physically experience the process Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> well, how can people digitally experience more of your work? Well, they can find the History of Egypt podcast on iTunes and, you know, Podbay and all the various podcast sites. Basically, anywhere podcasts are found, except for Google Play. I'm still trying to get that working because Google Play doesn't technically function in New Zealand yet. And I'm still trying to figure out a workaround for that. But anywhere else, you can find the podcast. And... You can go to egyptianhistorypodcast.com and follow us on Facebook at Egyptian the History of Egypt podcast. And we're also on Twitter, Egyptian Podcast. And yeah, um, the, the usual haunts, I suppose. But the big, the big one where I post is egyptianhistorypodcast.com. And obviously the episodes come out um, every two weeks or so or more frequently if I'm able to get the time. Yeah. And uh, I guess just kind of in closing, is there anything that you think um, that, we, that was uh, important or that would, you would recommend as a starting point other than uh, episode one of the Egyptian History Podcast? I highly recommend it. <laughs> Where, what, what, do you have any other resources or, or things that people you would recommend other than you've already mentioned uh, seeking out local universities and seeing about volunteering on, on, on digs or or in uh, in their departments. But um, where else would you suggest people go go have a, have a look to, to learn more about Egyptian history? Sure. Well, I, I would stay the hell away from YouTube or Wikipedia simply because the scholarship is totally unmonitored there and anyone can post anything. And also the YouTube... I am telling you that. Yeah, surprisingly. Um, they were actually silos for beer. They are giant kegs. That is some good scholarship right there. That Absolutely. is tasty. I mean, it's, it's a lesson-known fact that when his archaeologists first opened the pyramids, they were able to get incredibly drunk on the vast quantities of beer that was still inside. See, that's why you come up with the mummy curse legend. That way you keep people away from the good stuff. Well, there's a there's a common there's a common idea that maybe the first mummy legend was a drunk archaeologist archaeologist hanging out in one of the pyramids and thought he heard someone coming for them and just ran. That's actually totally not true. <laughs> but you can right? find that on YouTube. I, and YouTube will say it is true. I apologize you probably for interrupting. Could. And that's that's the danger. Is it can sound totally believable, but it's probably not. Here I felt bad about my 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 few uh, things I'd I'd learned from the Discovery Channel. <laughs> well, the good the good thing about the Discovery Channel and History Channel is that they they do tend to base their their projects and material on at least the the proper facts. Where they where they tend to go wrong is either over dramatizing something or sensationalizing something. But usually their basic basic material is perfectly sound. And uh, but then there's also the issue that because these things are made, you know, say once every few years, after three or four years, that information might be out of date and might be might have been overturned by more recent discoveries. So, Discovery Channel and History Channel are actually perfectly acceptable introductions to the material. But in terms of digging deeper, like you asked before, I mean, there's a thousand and one very general histories out there of ancient Egypt in book form. 
Um, my podcast is obviously the absolute best resource that's ever been created about ancient Egypt, so go there. There is actually another podcast that I would like to shout out called Eric's Guide to Ancient Egypt. Now, Eric uh, does a different approach. He does like thematic discussions about various topics, and he hasn't updated for a while, but hopefully he'll be back soon. But there's plenty of good material in there as well, so that's worth checking out. Um, generally, the best the best place to go is your local museum, anywhere that has Egyptian artifacts. Um, any local university often runs night classes in this material. So there are lots of interesting and very creditable places to find out about this material. The best place, I think, would be um, a museum, a university, my podcast, or a good book by a well-known or respected Egyptologist. I think that's a good place to, to direct people now. So I'm, uh, without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and hit the space bar and um, just wish you all the best luck. We thank you so much for your time. Again, we are here with, um, with Dominique Perry, the host of the Egyptian History Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Goodbye. All the best. Hey listeners, this is Micus, creator of the kind of epic theme song, Zombie Kids. If you're interested in finding out more about my music, you can check me out at micusmusic.com. Also, I am on iTunes, Facebook, and SoundCloud. You can look me up as Micus Music, and that's M-I-K-U-S, and you know the rest. Alright, peace out everyone. Keep listening.